Really good to have you with us. And um, as you can see, things are changing in our building here. Uh, we're sorry for those of you who had to navigate uh, the Noah's Ark hallways for the first time. I know that's a little bit challenging this morning, but in a couple weeks, that is going to be much better. And the new open area there with the indoor playground for the kids is going to be really fantastic. I think kids are going to be really, really excited about that. So this morning, we are concluding our two-month study in the books, Old Testament books of First and Second Kings, where we've been focused on the two key prophets in those books, Elijah and Elisha. Both of these prophets were known for their powerful demonstrations of power, and both of them served God amongst the Israelites during a time when the Israelites were largely given over to the worship of idols. Elijah, whose name means my God is Yahweh, appeared very abruptly in the book of 1 Kings in the midst of the worship of Baal, the idol or the false god that the Israelites felt was responsible for rain and good crops and so forth. And in the midst of God's people turning to Baal as Lord, this prophet Elijah appears, whose name means, my God is Yahweh. Yahweh is the name God gave for himself to Moses at the burning bush. When he told Moses, I am that I am. Uh, Yahweh is his name. In our Bibles, it's typically just translated the Lord with Lord and all caps. So Elijah appears, he does these extraordinary miracles and is pointing people back to the true and living God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. Well, when God removes Elijah from the scene, his understudy, his successor, Elisha, who has followed him very closely, has asked that a double portion of the Spirit upon Elijah would be upon him. And so now we're looking at the ministry of Elisha, whose name means uh, my God is salvation. It's interesting because as we follow the two prophets in the books of First and Second Kings, they did many similar miracles. Both prophets divided the Jordan River miraculously. Both prophets raised someone from the dead. Last week, Pastor Andrew did a great job, I thought, of introducing us to perhaps the best-known healing in Elisha's ministry, and that was the healing of a man named Naaman, a military commander. And I'd like to pick up where Andrew left off last week and look at something that happened right after the healing of Naaman and connected to the healing of Naaman. But first, let's go back and just review some of the details of this particular miracle. Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army. He was held in especially high regard in Syria. Syria was often at war with Israel, and he was held in high regard because their army had been winning so many battles. He was somewhat of a hero in Syria, perhaps the best-known person in Syria after the, the king. But Naaman, the scripture says, was a leper. And it happened that in their home, Naaman and his wife had a servant girl who was a Jew. She was an Israelite that had been captured on one of the Syrian raids 
against Israel. And one day the servant girl said to her mistress, Naaman's wife, I sure wish uh, my lord, that is Naaman, could be in touch with the prophet who's in Israel, referring to Elijah, for he could cure him of this leprosy. Well, word, of course, got to Naaman about this, and this sounded interesting. You talked to the king, and king gave his okay to go to Israel. So Naaman does not go empty-handed. Uh, scripture tell us, tells us that a, a, a team of people went with him loaded with ten talents of silver. Now, a, a talent was, in biblical times, 75 pounds. So 10 talents, they're loaded down with 750 pounds of silver. In addition to that, 6,000 shekels of gold. That's 150 pounds of gold and 10 changes of clothing, along with Naaman and members of his army, chariots, uh, horsemen. And they make their way to Israel, and they, they find the location of the house of this prophet named Elisha, whose name means, my God, is salvation. And they get to Elisha's house, and Elisha doesn't even come out to greet them. He just sends a messenger out, as if he knows they're coming, and the messenger goes with this message. Tell Naaman to go dip in the Jordan River seven times, and his flesh will be restored like that of a child. Well, Naaman is a little bit offended at this. He said, surely I thought the prophet would come out himself and wave his hand over me and cure the leper. And furthermore, don't we have better rivers in Syria than the Jordan River here in Israel? But fortunately for him, Naaman's two servants said, my Lord, it's a great thing the prophet has told you to do. Will you not do it? And so he did it. He went, he, he dipped in the Jordan River seven times, and after the seventh time he came out, and the leprous disease on his skin was gone, and his flesh was like the clean, pure flesh of a child. Well, after this, Naaman goes back to Elijah. He's got to present him with all this wealth he's brought as a kind of a, a thank offering or gift of sorts. And he goes back and says, Now I know there's no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept a present from my hand. But Elisha says, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Elisha wouldn't take anything for this miracle. But while Elisha steadfastly refused, he had a servant named Gehazi who saw an opportunity here. So Gehazi followed Naaman and this crowd of people with him. And Naaman saw him and he got down off his horse and he said, what is it? He said, um, my master, the prophet, sent me to tell you that we've had two sons of the prophets, two visiting prophets come to us. And he asked if you could, could send back with me a, a talent of the silver 75 pounds of silver and a couple changes of clothes. So Naaman says, sure, be, no problem. Take, take two talents of silver, and I'll send my servants with you to carry this stuff. 
Well, when they get within sight of Elisha's house, Gehazi says, let me take it. He takes it, makes his way to the house to hide the stuff. And he goes in to greet the prophet. Now, this was the prophet, by the way, who a couple chapters before we saw was telling the king of Israel where the king of Syria would next attack before he attacked. So this is a prophet who God speaks to. He knows things. And so when Gehazi comes back to Elijah, he says, where have you been, Gehazi? He said, your servant went nowhere. He said, did not my heart go with you when the man turned to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, etc.? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow, just like that. Gehazi gets this leprous skin disease. Well, one of the first questions that comes to my mind is, why such a harsh judgment on Gehazi? I mean, after all, the Syrians were enemies of Israel, and this man came with all this wealth, and it would have been no crime, no sin for the prophet to accept some of this wealth. In fact, the chapter before this one, chapter 4, records a man bringing a bunch of food, grain, and, and bread and stuff to Elisha, and he accepted it gladly. So what's wrong with accepting a little bit of this abundance? There was no law against it. And after all, Gehazi didn't outright steal it. He did lie. He did deceive Naaman. But why such a harsh judgment? I mean, leprosy and on your descendants as well? That's a pretty bad crime. It's kind of like stealing a pack of gum from a grocery store and you get a, a, a life in prison sentence. This doesn't seem to match the crime. But maybe there's more happening here than first meets the eye. Maybe we need to step back and look at this miracle and what's happening in history because God is always at work unfolding His great plan. And maybe we need to ask, why was this healing of the Syrian Naaman so significant in the eyes of God? Pastor Andrew touched on this last week and we'd like to pick up here today. Naaman's healing was, I believe, a picture of God's grace for a Gentile, a non-Jew. Long before the time of Elijah and Elisha, God called a man named Abram, called him to leave his home country and his people and to follow him to a land that he would show him. He would later change his name to Abraham. And God made a significant promise to Abram, and it is one of the most important promises in all of Scripture. It's found in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. And in this promise, God promises Abram a land, a promised land, a seed that is descendants, and a particular blessing that would come through his descendants. And the blessing is this. In you, Abram, in your descendants, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, that's an incredible promise to a man who had no children at that time. Through your descendants, all the races and ethnicities and nations of the world are going to be blessed. Now, what did he mean by that? Someone once said, the New Testament 
is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And I think that applies here. Particularly as we look ahead to the New Testament book of Galatians. You won't see these verses on the screen, but please listen very, very carefully. As the Apostle Paul, after the coming of Jesus to give his life on the cross, after sending his people out to take the message of his free salvation to all nations of the earth, the Apostle Paul is writing about this. And he's writing to people who wanted to distort the gospel and add a bunch of laws to it. They wanted to add stuff to what Jesus had done. And here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, or the descendants of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, quote, In you all the nations of the world should be blessed. So then those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The point is simply this. When God gave this remarkable promise to Abraham, veiled in this promise was the gospel of Jesus that would be not just for the Jews. A salvation would come through the Jews through whom the Messiah would come, but it would be for all nations of the world. And we see in the Old Testament instances of people who were not Jews, who were Gentiles, themselves coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Naaman's healing was a picture of God's grace for a Gentile, and it resulted in his coming to faith in Yahweh. We read again what Naaman said. He, Naaman, returned to the man of God, Elisha. He and all his company came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so now accept a present from your servant. Here's the Syrian man. He's a non-Jew. He's come to believe in the true and living God. In fact, he goes on to say, if it's okay with you, Elisha, I'd like to take back, take back some loads of dirt from Israel to Syria where people worship this idol called Rimon, and I'd like to have an altar to the Lord and worship the Lord there. And Elisha said, go in peace. There are other cases in the Old Testament where a non-Jew a Gentile comes to faith in Jesus. One of those in the book of Joshua. Joshua is a book that tells us about the Israelites marching around Jericho seven times and the walls fall down. And there was a prostitute in Jericho named Rahab. And when the Israelite spies came to her, she hid them and protected them because she said, we've heard about your God. We've heard of the power of your God. She believed in the true God. If we fast forward to the New Testament book of James, do you know that James uses Rahab the prostitute as an example to us of saving faith? And we will look at that in a few weeks as we begin our study of the book of James next week. But you know what else is especially interesting? If you ever read through genealogies in the Bible, you probably, if you've read the New Testament, you know the very first uh, chapter of the Gospel of Matthew gives a genealogy of Christ. And do you know who the first woman listed in the genealogy is? Rahab, the prostitute. This non-Jew, this Gentile, came to faith in Jesus. 
The woman after her in that genealogy, by the way, is a woman named Ruth. The Old Testament book of Ruth is named for her. And she was not a Jew, she was a Moabite. But she decided to leave her people and she said to her mother-in-law, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. What's happening here? God is unfolding this promise that he made to Abraham even before the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, as we see non-Jews turning to the grace of God, believing in Yahweh, the Lord, the true and living God, turning away from idols. And Naaman is an example of this. And Jesus himself pointed to Naaman as an example of a non-Israelite, a Gentile that received the grace of God. Here's how that happens. When Jesus began his public ministry, the Bible tells us he was, he was drawn by the Spirit out into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. He returned and he came into the synagogue. And when he came to the synagogue, he picked up a scroll to read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he began reading it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Handed the scroll back to the attendant and he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What you've read about in the Old Testament, it's now coming to pass. It's now unfolding. Jesus knew Many of the Jews, even those listening to him in the synagogue, would not receive him, would reject him. He knew that many non-Jews, Gentiles, would receive him. And he would later tell his disciples, after his sacrifice on the cross, his purchase of our salvation, to go to all the nations of the world and take the good news of his salvation. But as he's still speaking in the synagogue, he points to two Old Testament examples to show that God's gospel is going to go, His grace is going to go to those who are not Jews. This was an offensive idea to the Jews, seeing themselves alone as the chosen people of God. Jesus continues in the synagogue and says, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. In other words, God sent his grace to a Sidonian, a non-Jew. And then he says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so it could throw him down the cliff. You hear what's happening here? Jesus is pointing to this account of Naaman the Syrian. It's an example of the grace of God going beyond the Jews to those who would believe. The gospel veiled in the Old Testament. So Naaman is a picture of God's grace for a believing Gentile. And if that is the case, it certainly, 
I think, makes sense that Elisha's refusal to accept payment shows that God's grace cannot be bought. And again, when Naaman, he's been healed, he's brought this great wealth, he goes back and says, I know there's no God in all the earth but in Israel, so now accept a present from your servant. What does Elisha say? Whose name means, my God is salvation. As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. There would have been nothing wrong with a prophet taking a gift. Chapter 4, he received a gift from others. The Old Testament allowed the tithes of the people to provide for the priest. He steadfastly refused. Why? Because Elijah's refusal to accept payment shows that God's grace cannot be bought. Naaman, this Syrian, this non-Jew, had merely believed God's word through the prophet, humbled himself, yes, to believe that word, and acted in obedience, and he was healed by the grace of God. Gehazi's actions then can be seen in a different light, because Gehazi's actions serve to obscure the presentation of God's grace to Naaman and his country. Imagine for a moment if Gehazi had not gone after him for some of the money. Here's Naaman, famous military commander in Syria. Everybody knows that he's a leper. He's leaving his land loaded up with treasure, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, Ten changes of clothing, lots of soldiers, chariots, horses. They see him going away to the land of Israel. Then they see him return, the military hero, the man who is a leper, and they marvel because his skin is healed. He doesn't any longer have this leprous skin disease. And they also see he's got all the stuff, all the wealth back with him. And they begin to ask him, tell us what happened. And he tells them, the, the, the God of the Israelites, the one they call Yahweh, the Lord, he's the, he's the real God. He's the true God. He's the only God. But you brought all your money back. Yeah, they, they wouldn't take a penny. It was free. Couldn't pay anything. But... Gehazi's actions changed the picture a little bit. Now he comes back healed, and they, they go out to celebrate his healing and, and, and say, looks like you brought the wealth back. He said, would the prophet, would this God not accept an offering? Would he accept nothing at all? He says, well, just a little. Uh, 10 to 20%. Not bad for the miracle that I got. Perhaps Gehazi's actions have distorted a picture of the grace of God by faith that God intended to showcase before all the Syrians who knew this man. So again, what does Gehazi do? We read in verse 20, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian. Do you almost hear the scorn in his voice? This Naaman the Syrian, Gehazi doesn't seem to have much, uh, uh, much care for the Syrians. 
has spared this name and the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So you see his covetousness. In the next slide, we see that he goes to Naaman and, and says, My master sent me to say there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and sent them in away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? He said, Your servant went nowhere. And he said, Did not my heart go with you? What has Gehazi done? Well, he's in his covetousness. He, he's lied to Naaman, but now he's deceived Elisha. And what was intended to be a beautiful depiction of God's grace to the Gentiles, one that was even noted by Jesus as God's grace going to the Gentiles, has been distorted by this man because of his covetousness and his deceit. God is very displeased with our distortion of the gospel, with our attempts to add requirements to that which has been provided by the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. This was an ongoing issue in the early Christian church. Often with people whom the Apostle Paul encountered, many of whom had, had been Jews and, and Jews who had held steadfastly to the laws of Moses. One of those laws had to do with circumcision and the need to be circumcision. And when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian church, he was addressing this because there were those who'd come into the church saying, yes, Jesus is good, Jesus is fine. Yes, he died on the cross for our sins and that's good. But if you really want to be saved... You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep certain laws of Moses. Distorting the gospel. Now here's what the Apostle Paul writes to them. In the book of Galatians chapter 1. You'll see it on the screen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. To distort means to twist or mislead or give a false impression of. I have spoken to people over the years who have grown up with a false impression of what it means to become a Christian. Sometimes they'll say to me, you know, I grew up in a church that was very rule-based, very legalistic. Yes, they believed in Jesus. Yes, they believed in a sacrifice on the cross. But unless you did this, and unless you did not do this, you were not considered to truly be saved. 
the question always arises if the grace of God is free, freely given, cannot be earned or deserved. What reason is there for us to change our lives? And the simple answer to that is love and gratitude. Because when a person really comprehends that the Son of God came to earth as a mere human being and suffered as he did on the cross and was spit upon and mocked and beaten and bore God the Father's wrath and judgment himself and went through something we could never understand. When people comprehend that and that it was done for, for me, that it was done for you. It changes us. There's love for God. I can remember being in college a freshman year, and, and someone sat me down in the undergraduate library and, and shared just a little part of the gospel with me and used a little tract by Campus Crusade for Christ called The Four Spiritual Laws, and he drew a little diagram with a circle and a throne, and he put a cross on the throne. He said, and if Jesus is your Lord, he's sitting on the throne. And I said, I think that's what I need. But I can remember the struggle in my mind because I thought, if I do that, I'm afraid everything's going to change. Because I started college very differently <clears throat> from the way I would graduate from college. All my friends were partying the freshman year away. <clears throat> And I was afraid I'd lose my friends. And to a significant degree, I did lose certain friends, gain new friends. But I prayed that prayer with some significant hesitation. And here's what I discovered. There was a love for God in my heart. Not only an assurance, but a, but a real love for the Lord. And that love began to displace the desire for things that I knew God did not want me to do. Because love for God was greater than love for these other things. I didn't want to hurt God. As if one could really hurt God, you know what I mean. I didn't want to hurt my fellowship with it. I didn't want to offend this God who'd shown such love for me. And so... As we draw to a close, I would just ask these two questions by way of personal application. Number one, am I basing my acceptance with God on his grace shown in the gospel or on something else? Does your security lie in your ability to get to church regularly or do certain good deeds? Or does your security lie on the Son of God who took our place and rose from the dead to make us adopted members of his family. And secondly, is his grace changing me? Because when faith is true, faith in Jesus is genuine. When we've received the grace of God, it indeed does change us. Not by becoming rule-based, but by becoming grace-based, and living our lives out of the awareness of the one who first loved us, and in the words of the Bible, 
causes the love of God to be poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's how we change. We love him who first loved us. And receiving the grace of God is more than just one-time salvation being born again. We live out of the grace of God. We increasingly comprehend the significance of what Jesus did and live out of that grace as God changes us throughout life. Is His grace changing you? Let's pray about that this morning. Father, we come in the name of the one who purchased our salvation and did what we could never do who gave his life to redeem us by his blood, who calls us into his forever family, Jesus, the Lord. Father, I pray now for anyone in this room who has never truly received that grace. And if you are uncertain whether you have truly received that grace, I'm going to ask you right now, to just join me in a prayer using these words. Dear God, I do believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. He did what I could never do because I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. But I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Jesus, I receive you as my Lord. Make me your child. Make me your follower. Right now. Father, I pray for all those here who are your children. We've struggled in our walk with you because we tend to fall back into rule-based living rather than grace-based living. Would you increase the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we more fully comprehend your love for us shown in the gospel and we live out of that love? May your grace change us. Would you set us free from things that we're doing that we know are wrong and we know you know are wrong? Would you set us free by the outpouring of love and grace and lead us to a deeper love for you and a deeper gratitude for your gospel. Now, Father, finally, as we're praying, we want to pray for the nation in which we live, the United States of America. How thankful we are that we can come and worship you here freely. But we pray for your mercy upon our nation. We pray for your hand to guide our leaders at every level of government. We ask that you would forgive us for our many offenses and sins toward you and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit so that the hearts of people would be turned toward you, the way and the truth and the life, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And may that be said of our nation. In your mercy, we ask. In your great name. Amen.